Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. Coming up on today's show, we'll tell you how facial recognition will help women find egg donors. We'll also tell you why you should not give apps access to your email address, even if you're trying to save a couple of bucks. The idea of the week this week, hurricane damage assessment imagery available online and why that's so important. The app of the week, Be My Eyes, how you can help people who do not have sight. And in Profiles in IT, we'll talk about Evie Nemeth, a computer engineer who was the godmother of Unix administrators. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Loud and proud, baby. Oh, Loud and proud. There he is. that is it. There we go. We got an email from Hawk and Bowie. Dear Doc and Jim, I recently installed Roku on my TV set in the living room. We'd been listening to your <laughs> Cut the Cord series on Tech Talk, and we decided to cut the cord, and we're using Roku. Now I want to use this TV for karaoke, and I like, and all my karaoke music is on my iPad and using on YouTube. And when I go into Roku to use the YouTube interface, it's so inconvenient I can hardly get a song to come out. Again, I got to type in one letter at a time. I'd like to actually play them on my iPad and have them show up on Roku. Is there any way I can do that? This is just so complicated for me, and I I hate to have to throw away this Roku deal because it doesn't work for my karaoke. Well, here's the easiest way to hook up karaoke videos using YouTube is to use your YouTube client on your iPhone, which, of course, you already know, because the one on Roku is very difficult to use. The good news is that Roku has built-in Chromecast capability, which makes screen mirroring mirroring very easy, but you have to have an application that supports Chromecast. The first thing you have to do, you've got to go into your Roku device. You have to enable uh, screen mirroring, and that will, in in a sense, turn on the Chromecast client. So you go... You open it up. First of all, you make certain that the Roku is connected to the same Wi-Fi network that your iPhone is on. And then you open up the Roku device and you go to settings and then you click on system. Then you do a system update to make certain that your that your Roku has the latest version on there, because I think this uh, Chromecast client is is a fairly new release. You want to make certain it's there and then update it so you can see that Chromecast client. Then after you're done, go back to system and choose screen mirroring, and you enable it. You can either say you you won't allow it, you'll allow it with selected devices, or you'll allow it with all devices. I suggest just say you'll allow it with all devices. And then after that, Roku set up. Now you simply open up your iPhone, then open up the uh, application that you want to mirror, say YouTube, and it turns out YouTube does support Chromecast. There's There's that Chromecast symbol 
uh, in the in the upper right hand corner there. It's like a rectangle with 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 the with the Wi-Fi symbol in one corner, and you just click on that. And then it will say, if you've got more than one Roku in the house, it'll say, which Roku do you want to mirror? So you're going to have to know the name of the Roku device in the in the room where you're located. Click on that device, and then immediately the screen is mirrored to the TV. You turn on YouTube, and everything's going to work perfectly. Now, this is a fairly new feature that uh, Roku has, and it's a little bit uh, buggy. So you may experience uh, there may be a lag time before the video turns on. Sometimes it locks up when you're on an iPad. This is a problem that they've had. So simply close it down and then set it up again to, to get it going. And other than that, I think this is going to be your solution to play karaoke using your iPad on the device that has Roku. So good luck with that. And yes. let, let me know if that works or doesn't work. We got an email from Susan in Alexandria. Good morning, gentlemen. So disappointed. She obviously isn't a big listener because she's calling us gentlemen. <laughs> yes, I know she doesn't. She doesn't know us that well. No. But uh, so so disappointed. Last week's show, you teased a reference that talked about the latest window update that deletes some files, but time ran out and you never got back to the topic. Please don't forget to tell us the rest of the story next time. Thanks for Tech Talk, Susan in Alexandria. Well, Susan, uh, I, like, I was going to cover that in the show today, but since it's going to be in a letter, I'll just, I'll just, you know, give you an update on that. Well, it is true that the October 10th update had a serious problem, that some files were actually just totally deleted. And there was one photographer, I, I was reading some blogs, he had 1,500 photographs in this one subdirectory, that got completely deleted, and he was livid mm -hmm. over that. So here is the and so what it here is as soon as that problem be, was became known to Microsoft, they halted the delivery of that update, and then they fixed it, and then they reissued the uh, reissued the update, and it doesn't have this problem of deleting files. Now the the problem with deleting files, it only happened in certain cases. And it's, it's a problem with what they call known folder redirection feature. You know, for instance, your, your download, if you want to download things, it goes to a particular subdirectory, which is like users, slash name, slash downloads. And sometimes people don't want to have that big, long name there. So they just change it. They, they want to say download to another drive, slash downloads. And so you want to redirect a known folder which is a known like system folder to another location. And, and they had a feature there, and they allowed you to do that. And then what happened, though, there was a slight bug in the feature that <clears throat> it would create an extra copy of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of, the, uh, of the of the subdirectory that you were leaving, you know, the, 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 old, the old known subdirectory. It would, it would just make another copy of it, and, and that would be empty. It would have nothing in it. And so... <clears throat> So Windows went, so Microsoft went and they created a feature that would just delete that extra copy. But when they created that feature, they forgot to check whether the subdirectory was empty because the flawed folder would have no files in it because it was just created by mistake. So then they just deleted folders without checking if there were any files. And for instance, this, this one guy had apparent, this one photographer apparently had used the known folder redirection, but he left a lot of photos in the old folder and kept using it. And they just came in, 
It just deleted that folder without wow. checking whether there are any fi files. So that was actually a big mistake. But now it's fixed. And uh, and if you never use the the that known folder redirection feature, then you wouldn't have any anything done. But Microsoft has fixed it. And thanks for listening, Susan. And uh, you know, by the way, I I did send an email to Susan because she was worried whether she should be blocking all of her updates with Microsoft. So I sent her an email and gave her the gave her the word right away. So she wouldn't have to wait for yes. the next show. Okay. We got an email from Lavona in Dumfries. Dear Doc and Jim, I am paranoid with all these smart home devices. Are they listening to my every word and collecting data 24-7? I feel like I'm putting a spy in my house voluntarily. What are your thoughts about this, Lavona in Dumfries? Well, actually, you know, it's good to be a little bit paranoid, uh, you know, putting all of these devices in your house. Because there are so many stories that you've read. Remember the NSA hack that actually gave you the code so you could turn on the speaker in, in someone's smart TV and listen to what was going on? Mm -hmm. And actually, they, they were doing that quite, quite easily and listening in people's living rooms through their smart TV. So, in fact, devices can be hacked, and you, and you might have somebody, you know, trying to spy on you. On the other hand... Uh, you know, that's a pretty small worry that somebody's going to be hacking your TV set to listen in on you. Um, most of the smart home devices are connected to the Internet to function properly, and they have to communicate with a central server. So anytime that, anytime that you talk to Alexa, Siri, or Google Assistant, uh, it takes your voice, sends it to a central server where they do voice recognition, then it looks up the answer, sends it back, and then you hear the answer. So it's all done remotely. And, in fact, these companies do store the questions and the voices, the questions and the comments that you make through that. They store all of that on their, on their, ma on their main server so they know what kind of questions you're asking. They do keep track of that. Now, on the other hand, even though these devices are always listening, they're only listening for the key word like, you know, like Google or like Alexa or Siri. They're, ah. they're, they're listening for like the wake-up word. So that's all those. And they're not really listening in to what you're doing. But um, so they're not actually recording you 24-7. But you would be worried about somebody hacking the device. Now, or say Nest Cams, you know, you, you've got these webcams in the house. Say the Nest Cam, it records information from the house and it stores it on Nest servers. They're, they're encrypted so you can view so they can, you know, so other people can't view your recordings. So they're really not spying on you. But this is what I would suggest. I would suggest if you've got these smart home devices, get them from reputable companies who do not want to have their reputation destroyed because of hacks. This would be, you know, Google, Apple, um, Amazon are all reputable companies. They want to develop firmware and software that is that is secure and is not easily hacked. I would not get a device that's made by some knockoff Chinese company because there have been a lot of problems with these Chinese knockoffs where they really don't worry about security because they, they don't have they they're, they're like a no-name company so they don't worry about a reputation. So I would get your devices from a reputable company and um and unless you're doing some sort of nuclear 
secrets there at your house. I don't think you've got. <laughs> I don't think you've got anything really to worry about, actually. But uh, but it's good. Never it's, know. It, it's good to be. Yeah, and I will also put put passwords on everything. I mean, yeah. I've been. I've heard cases where people set up baby cams. They they didn't they didn't even put, didn't, didn't even put passwords on them. And people could go in there and see the what was going on in the baby room. So make certain you got good strong passwords on everything, and I think you'll be okay. We got an email from Philip in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Dear Doc and Jim. I'd like to delete my Facebook account. However, I've stored so many pictures there. Is there any way I can download all my pictures easily and quickly from my Facebook account after that? How do I delete the account? Love the show, Philip in Pittsburgh. Well, <clears throat> this is what a lot of people do. They use Facebook to store pictures. You know, they upload it to Facebook and they figure, okay, there's my there's my picture. And then they, they might lose the original picture and it's and they use Facebook as their primary picture storage mechanism, which is really a bad practice. You shouldn't actually do that. But the good news is you can download all your Facebook information, including your pictures. What you want to do, you go to settings, and then, uh, you know, you go you, you the drop-down menu from that little uh, carrot on the right side, the drop-down menu, go down to the bottom, click on settings, and then click on your Facebook information in the upper left-hand corner, and then from that screen, you can you can basically back up your data. There's a link there that says back up your data. There's also a link that says delete your account. But you want to back up your data first. And uh, and you can download all your data at once, or you can select which ones. It gives, you all list, it gives you a list of all the different things you've got, all your messages, all your friends, all your invitations that you turned down, invitations that you accepted, invitations that you sent that were turned down. You know, you've got all of those things. You, you can decide what you want to save, and then and then you and then you decide whether you want to have it in HTML format, which is probably so you can easily easily look at it. So the pages in an HTML format will link to everything. That's probably the best way. But if you if you if you want to import it into another device, you can, you also have the choice of of doing the JSON format, J S O N. That stands for JavaScript Object Notation. And that's a lightweight data interchange format. So if you're going to if you're going to import it into another into another application, but I think in your case you just select HTML, and you also want to select high media quality. You don't want to download low resolution of your picture. You want the highest resolution of your pictures that you've got in your videos. Then you basically click download. They'll they'll ask you to put in your password, and then it will create a file which has an attachment which is zipped, which is compressed in a zip format. And it'll take, it takes an hour. Depending on how big your Facebook account, it could take, could take 10 minutes, could take two hours. And they'll notify you when your file is ready to be picked up. And then you can go back and then go back into the same screen. Your file will be ready, and then you can download it to your, to your computer. And it's, it's zipped, and so you can open up with any, a lot of free programs that will unzip a file. And you'll have all your photos in one subdirectory. Once you're sure you've got all your photos there, then you can go back and delete it. So you go back to the same Facebook settings location, your Facebook information, and then you click on Delete Your Account. And you enter a password, there's a little caption, and then you're done. Now, there's a 14-day cooling-off period. So if you log into your Facebook account in that 14-day period, the deletion's canceled. So you want to stay out of your account for 14 days, and then the deletion will go through after two weeks. And then it takes about 90 days for them to remove all the data from their servers, but they eventually get it done. So actually, Facebook's done a pretty good job of helping you manage your data. We got an email from Dennis in Maryland. Dear Tech Talk, I don't like to be tracked while I'm on the Internet. 
Can I hide my IP address while surfing the web? Dennis in Maryland. Well, Dennis, it's quite easy to hide your IP address. Your IP address, that's Internet Protocol address. That's your public ID address when you're on the Internet. And any traffic that's sent to you goes to that public address. You have to have a public address or they don't know how to get the information back to you. Now, many sites log those those addresses, and they and they use that to to you know to spy on you. They deliver personalized ads. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff they do with a lot of reasons that you may not want them to know uh, where your IP address is. I mean, people that are doing illegal things on the internet like to hide their IP address, but I don't think that's what you're up to. People may want to hide their IP address if they're in a different geographic region, like when I want to watch get into my Netflix account and I'm in India, I can't do it because it's out of the geographic region. But if I log in with a VPN, I can use it looks like I'm in New York City and then I can I can use <laughs> Netflix when I'm in India. And I I'm in, I'm not really breaking the rule because it's my account, but uh, I have to I have to override their geographic restrictions. And so also blocking your IP tree address is good in certain countries which try to censor stuff like in China or the Middle East. You might want to block your IP address when you're on the web so they can't track you down. So the best way to hide your IP address is to use a VPN, a virtual private network, and that's an, that, that's an encrypted data stream that goes to a proxy server. And then the proxy server makes all the requests on your behalf. And so the websites see the IP address of the proxy server. Then the proxy server gets the information and sends it back to you. Then nobody knows your IP address. They only know the IP address of the proxy server. And, they, and there's also the, uh, the Onion Router, Tor, which goes through a cascade of proxy servers to make it very, very difficult to, to get at your IP address. Tor is if you really want to be anonymous, um, that you would use that, but it's slow. And chances are you could just get a good, a good VPN. Now, I would get a paid VPN. Don't get a free one because the, you never know. The free ones try to sell your data. They make money somehow. Now, I like ExpressVPN because it's really fast, and it's really it's great for watching movies, and it's, got, it's very responsive. It's got great reviews, and also NordVPN has gotten great reviews. So I'd, I'd either get ExpressVPN or NordVPN, and they run around $100 a year for multiple devices. We got an email from Don in Arlington. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm looking to buy a new car and really want to use my iPhone with Waze for navigation. When will it be available in new car offerings? Love the show, Don in Arlington. Well, Don, CarPlay is the Apple standard that enables a car radio or or entertainment unit to display your iPhone and also to act as a controller for the iPhone. It's available on all iPhone 5 and later models that have at least iOS 7.1 or later. Now, most CarPlay software runs on the connected phone. So you're basically using So the Waze actually runs on the connected phone, and it just basically, you just have it displayed in the car. The CarPlay interface provides audio and display connection to the infotainment system. CarPlay is controlled through the touchscreen, if you've got a touchscreen on your car, or through a rotary dial, or through a trackpad, or through buttons on the instrument cluster or the steering wheel. And you can... Control CarPlay, and you can also control your phone. It's also easy to, so you can actually do navigation without touching your phone, which is really much safer. Now, most worldwide vehicle manufacturers have said they'll be incorporating CarPlay into their infotainment systems over time. According to Apple's website, all major vehicle manufacturers are partnering with CarPlay. 
Apple CarPlay is supported on more than 400 models through 2019. Some manufacturers began adapting CarPlay in 2016 with the biggest expansion in 2018. Even Lexus, which was a long-standing holdout, hmm. is going to adopt CarPlay in, for their 2019 models. Uh, in addition, now this is the good news, Waze had a recent update, and now Waze supports CarPlay. You see, there's a lot of politics going on here. The car manufacturers really delayed integrating CarPlay or Google Play into their into their car because they wanted to own the navigation system. That was a highly highly profitable item for them, and so they and they wanted to control the whole ecosystem. But eventually, these mobile navigation apps have just taken over, and mobile navigation is so much better than the navigation in your car. I mean, I've got navigation in my Lexus. I don't even use it. Show off because it's so easy. To, to use it with Waze, you know. I love Waze. I know, I know Jim, you do. You're just, like, tweaking my last nerve over I here. Know, Jim, I can't Jim, stand Waze. Jim, Jim hates Waze, but that's okay. That's that's why I bring it up whenever I can. Yeah, I know, because <laughs> you're like my older brother who just likes to, you know. That's right. So now you can, there's a there's a link. You can go to the apple.com slash iOS slash CarPlay slash available models, and I'll have that link posted to the website in, in a day or two. Or you can just search for what, what models are supported by Apple CarPlay. It'll take you right to that site, and you can get the whole list of models that are there. I know one thing. I'm not – my next car is going to have – CarPlay support, because I'm tired of holding my iPhone while I'm trying to drive. Well, let me ask that, that, that I begs the question. Are you looking for a new car? Well, it'll be a couple years. Oh, okay. No, what, I'm not looking right now. What but year is your car? It's I don't know. It's about a year old. It's only a year old? I, maybe it's a, it? year, it's a year and a half old. Oh, okay. I don't know. Huh. I, get, I get the... Listen, my car just... I get the same model and the same color. So it looks like I don't even get a new car. I, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, okay, so, well, that explains so that. So it looks like I never get a new car because, for me, it's just transportation. Understood. So, but you get the same car in the same color, so clearly that means something that's to right. you. That's that, right. That's exactly right. I, I like a good, reliable car, but I have well, really you do been... have a Lexus if it's not reliable. No, it is reliable. No, I was going to say, if you had a Lexus that wasn't reliable, that would be a problem. That would be a problem. That's right. We got an email from Feroz in Fredericksburg. Dear Doc and Jim, I've been installing devices that connect to my Wi-Fi router, and they all have, seem to have this button called WPS. Mm-hmm. My, Wi-Fi route, my Wi-Fi router also has a WPS button. What's this button used for? You know, I push it and nothing happens. What's... Uh, so I'd like to figure it out. Love the show. Feroz in Fredericksburg. Well, WPA stands for Wi-Fi Protected Setup. Wi-Fi Protected Setup. It's a network security standard that to create a secure wireless home network. It was created by the Wi-Fi Alliance and introduced in 2006. So it's been around for a while. It's not like an old deal. Now, the goal of the protocol is to allow home users who don't know anything about wireless security you know, to set up Wi-Fi devices. So this is the deal. When you set up a Wi-Fi device, it's going to connect to your router. Of course, you have to put in your Wi-Fi address, your Wi-Fi, you know, your network name and the password and all of that stuff. But with WPS, it's really nice. You simply push the WPS button on the device you want to hook to your Wi-Fi system and then go to the router and push the WPS. And then the router automatically sends the network address and the passwords all to that device, and you don't have to do anything. 
you just push the two devices and it and it and it works perfectly. Now on most devices, this discovery mode, which which is what it is when you press the button, you open up discovery mode and they find each other. On most devices, this discovery mode turns itself off after uh, after about two minutes or less because while it's in that discovery mode, somebody else could hook onto your network. So you so you don't want it to stay on indefinitely. Now, during that setup, all the network information, including passwords and network name, are transferred to the device automatically. So that's really a nice feature to have, and um, I really like it. We got an email from Jeff in Gaithersburg. Dear Tech Talk, I've got Wi-Fi dead spots uh, in my house, and I'd like to fix them. Is there a way to extend my network without spending too much money? Enjoy the show, Jeff and Gaithersburg. Well, Jeff, you got several options. You could, uh, ranging from directional antennas, you could get a range extender or you could get a second router. Now, I've tried them all at one time or another because I just like to try stuff. Now, I think your easiest option is probably a range extender. Range extenders have gotten better over the years and now are really, really easy to set up. Now, when you choose a range extender, you want to get one that matches your router spec. So, for instance, you've got a dual-band router. You want to make certain you get a dual-band range extender. That would be so you support both the 5.8 gigahertz band as well as the 2.4 gigahertz band. Now, if your router supports multi-user, multiple input, multiple output, that's called MU, MIMO, <laughs> data streaming, which is really nice because it will it will stream data to multiple people at the same time simultaneously instead of sequentially. And so it's much better if you've got a lot of people playing games or watching movies in the house. And most of the more expensive routers support this multiple user, multiple input. So if you've got multiple user, multiple input support on your browser, on your uh, router, make certain to get that on the on the extender device. Now, there are two types of range extenders out there. One is a desktop, and the other one's a plug-in. Now, the desktop's kind of big, and it's got USB ports. It's got, it's got additional Ethernet ports. It almost looks like another router, and it sits on the desktop. They're more expensive. Or you can get little small units that just plug in the wall, and, um, and they're, they're much smaller. And they might only have one Ethernet connection in them, and, they're very mu- and they don't have any USB connections. I would recommend you just get one of those plug-in units that just, just goes in the wall. And they're, um, they're, they're, they're actually pretty good now. Most of today's routers support this WPS mode, Wi-Fi protective mode status, and so it's really simple. You just <laughs> so you'll plug in your 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 Wi-Fi extender, you'll push the WPS button on the Wi-Fi extender, then go to your router and push the WPS button, and bingo, your extender set up. Now there, now in terms of pricing, if you want a two-band range extender that supports multiple input, multiple output, they're about $100 to $125. If you want a two-band range extender without multiple input, multiple output, they're in the $50 to $75 range. Netgear and TP-Link range extenders are PC Magazine's editor's choice. Now, here's one problem. The range extender, it sets up basically a slightly different network name. So when you're walking around the house, you'll have the network name for your base router. And then if you go into the extended area, you've got to connect to a different Wi-Fi network. So And you have to do that manually. It doesn't just switch off. So, so they have invented something called a mesh network where there's just one network name over the whole house. And so you could – so if you're, if you're planning just to throw out everything, you know, this is the most expensive, you know, throw out your router, throw out everything, you could actually get a mesh network 
But then you're going to be spending three to five hundred dollars for this. And mesh networks, you know, you could have one node, which wouldn't be a mesh. Then you could add, <laughs> then you could add two nodes, which would be the minimum mesh. You could add three nodes, you could, and you could keep adding nodes, and they mesh together. And the beauty is that. They automatically configure, and it's one network name, and as you walk around the house, the, the mesh figures out how to transfer you from one node to the next as, as, as one goes out of range and another one comes in range. So mesh networks are really convenient, but I'm thinking in your case, you're just going to want to get a, a cheap extender, and just when you're in the, in the dead spot zone, just, just attach to the, to the network name of the extender. Now, if you want to get one, one of the nicest mesh networks, by the way, is Google Wi-Fi, and it's around $130 a node. So every time you get another node, you spend $130. That is really easy to set up. It got great reviews. Now there are other mesh networks that, that got even better reviews than Wi-Fi than Google Wi-Fi, but they're a little bit expensive. They've got Linksys, TP-Link, and Netgear. These are all three other brands that do that that work pretty well, and they're between three and five hundred dollars for two or three nodes. You see, so I mean, the most expensive Linksys there for uh, for three nodes is five hundred dollars. So you're just throwing out everything. Mm-hmm. If you want to get three nodes, probably the cheapest three node deal is going to be your Google Wi-Fi, which would be which would be $390 for three nodes, or two nodes might be enough. But the nice thing is you can just pick what you want. So there you go. I'm thinking you should get a range extender. But if you want to go whole hog, go for the mesh. So it's funny that uh, you should be bringing this up. If you st- if you started using your mesh network on on Halloween, would it be called a monster mesh? It could be. It could be a monster mesh. Um, it's funny that this question comes up because I happen to see something on TV and passing it the uh, uh-huh. last week a commercial from uh, Xfinity that they're now offering these X5 pods. Uh-huh. Uh, that, so if you were still just using your Xfinity box, uh-huh. you could buy a pod, a pack of these three pods, which you just plug in little mm-hmm. things uh, that go into the, your your electric socket. It's 119 bucks for a pack of these three things. That's not a bad for that's three not, for three of for them. For three, yeah, that's not bad. But you know what? It, <laughs> what it doesn't say in the specs here is whether or not it uh, it covers both bands. But yeah. I suspect the Xfinity Wi-Fi is not is 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 the older. So, Band, right? so the so the key is throughput because mm-hmm. the 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 cheap so those that's that's that that sounds like a mesh network if they've got three nodes, but the thing is there are some really cheap meshes out there that don't have much throughput, mm-hmm. and so what you want to do you've really got to look at the specs uh, if you're planning if you got people in the house who are going to be streaming video you you, you want to get sufficient throughput to handle that yeah this is mesh. This is a me- that's what they're saying. It here. sounds like uh-huh. it's a mesh, and so then it all depends on the specs. Interesting. And whether it supports multiple input, multiple output, so you can have multiple. So there, it all depends on the specs. It sounds to me like at that price, it's kind of a it's kind of a minimum do you, delivery. Do you Except know what the thing is, it's no, but they might give it to you cheap because it's tied to Xfinity. Right. So if you dump them as a carrier, you have to throw away your whole mesh. And so it's a way to lock you in. Exactly. So do you, do you know what a good capacity is? Uh, what I I don't know. Uh, I, good. Well, this, I mean, this is this this means nothing. It says Wi-Fi capacity AC 1200. I have no idea what that means. 
That's AC twelve hundred. I don't know what. I'm going to do a little homework while you do the, take, yeah. take the next. Uh, I, that sounds like a model number more than anything. See AC. Those those are like. Two. I know, but it but the, it says it says specs color white Wi-Fi capacity AC twelve hundred. Let me so, go check this. So out, okay? so AC those those are the eleven eight oh two dot eleven A eleven oh two dot eleven C. Those are two specs. So they're saying that those are the two standards that it supports. Those are, those are the two standards that it supports, uh, but that's not necessarily the core, the actual transfer capacity for the device. But you'll have to see. So that might be a good marketing ploy for them. They they really give you a good mesh, and then they they lock you in. It said, well, uh, who knows? Okay, continue on. I, let okay. me let me. I'll look into this. We got an email from John in Bethesda. Dear Tech Talk, I own an HP inkjet printer, and print cartridges are just too expensive. Well, that is the truth, John. I tried to refill my ink cartridges to save money, and now my printer's rejecting them. Then I tried to buy cheaper. Jet cartridges that were new from other companies, and my print printer rejected them too. Is there anything I can do to save money on these printers? I'm frustrated. Love the show, John and Bethesda. Well, print manufacturers hate third-party ink cartridges or refilled ink cartridges because they make the bulk of their profit on these printers from the ink cartridges. So Epson and HP issued sneaky updates. And they and they made it so that their printers will not accept cheaper cartridges to force you to buy their expensive ones. HP pioneered this technique back in 2016. It rolled out an alleged security update to OfficeJet and OfficeJet Pro printers, but that activated a new feature that said any time you start printing, it checks to see whether you're using it. it's a competitor's ink cartridge or a refilled HP ink cartridge, and if it's one of, either one of those, the printing would stop. Because HP said, we want to protect you from faulty hardware. Mm-hmm. They said it was a feature. And the only way to be protected against faulty hardware is to buy genuine HP ink cartridges at our exorbitant price. Of course. Now, in, uh, in, er, in late 2016, Epson sent out the same deceptive update to many of its printers. And just like HP, Epson disguised this update as a routine software improvement. But they're really poison pills designed to downgrade the printer so it can only take the Epson expensive ink systems. So the cheapest way to print at home is to actually get a laser jet, and then you can get toner cartridges, and that is a lot less per page. And then if you want to print, like, color photos... You could you could you could either use a photo printing service rather than buy an expensive photo printer. That might be a way to operate it, but that is one of the disadvantages of inkjets. They sell the printers really cheap, but you you pay for it on the back end. Okay, Listen, I, can I do yes. this real fast? Mm-hmm. So, so th- th- it says uh, apparently there are two different standards here. There's AC versus N. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, all right. So it says Wi-Fi is always promoted as using the- theoretical speeds and is by the standard uh, 802.11ac is a, the cap- capable of about 1,300 megabits per second, which is the equivalent of 162.5 megabytes uh, per second, three times faster than the end. So AC is way faster. So than here's it. the deal. that those They're giving you the theoretical limits of the standard. They're not telling you the speed of the mesh. Ah. The one thing they're not telling you is the question we want to know. How close is the mesh speed you know, to the theoretical standard speed on the on the uh, you know on the standard? And that's why you're here. So the thing is, what they gave you was absolute double talk. 
That's why you're here. See, and so thank you for w- clearing that up. So the thing is, what, so, theori- so what they're saying theoretically it could be really fast. But that's right. It's like saying your your, your broadband connection at home is theoretically a gigabit per second, mm-hmm. but really it's 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 like one tenth that. Mm-hmm. So it's a theoretical, uh, but it's not really. What do you have with multiple users streaming video? And so yeah. And so the real mesh networks that people actually you know stretch them out and make measurements. So the so the mesh networks that I gave you uh, got very good reviews when they were actually stressed out. Now, X, this Xfinity could be could be a good mesh network. It's just that they didn't prove it with that spec. And uh, so this Xfinity thing may not be that good. You don't know. You don't know until you buy it. You don't know. But, but then you're locked into Xfinity. So if you ever decide to change your uh, carrier... You're, you're stuck because you you, you you got the Xfinity deal. junk. It's all junk. So well, I don't know if it's I'm junk. Joking. I don't know if it's junk, but it's a very clever way to lock you in. Mm-hmm. So it could be a, a good program for Xfinity. There he is, Doctor Shirts. Listen, we love your it. emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening <clears> to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2. Be right back. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Evie Nemeth. Evie Nemeth is an engineer known for her expertise in computer system administration and networks. And she's also best known as godmother of Unix administrators. Aha. So she has survived in a world that is mostly dominated by men, and she received a pinnacle of very, very high respect. Evie was born June 7, 1940 in Vermont. She got her bachelor's degree in mathematics at Penn State University in 1961 and her Ph.D. in mathematics at the University of Waterloo in Canada in 1971. Evie Nemeth worked in Bolter during the summers starting in 1976, and she really became 
you know, attracted to the to the climate and the environment there in Boulder, Colorado. She was an associate professor at Colorado University from 1980 to 2001, where she taught networks, data structures, Unix tools, and system administration. She was really known at the university as someone who could develop undergraduate students. So she'd bring them into the uh, into the uh, into the uh, you know computer lab, and she would train them on being Unix administrators, and they would learn a lot under her tutelage. And she made a huge difference to the computer science program at uh, at CU at, at uh, Colorado University. Uh, her math skills were proven when she found a problem with the Diffie-Hellman encryption technique that's used for cryptography. Which we discussed recently yeah, on this we, program. We have discussed that. Now, there was a mathematician called er- Erdos, and and they have something called an Erdos number. How many times removed are you from Erdos at, when you're referenced in mathematical articles? So Erdos number of one, it means that you would be d- directly referenced by himself. She has Erdos number of two. Yeah. So she's really, you know, quite heavily referenced in the mathematical arena. Now, she bought a house in Sunshine Canyon in 1983 after getting a full-time job with Colorado University in 1980. Now, what she did, she purchased an old pump house and transported it up the canyon, and she relied on a wood-burning stove for heat and used composting toilets. (laughs) Okay. So she was definitely a nature gal. Uh Uh-huh. In 2013, her house burnt down in a forest fire. She lost almost everything. That's terrible. She had plans to rebuild, and she had just bought a historic cabin on Main Street in Gold Mill. And I guess she was planning to move that historic cabin up to the uh, the, uh, canyon. The mountain. Yeah, the the canyon. In 1989, she wrote the Unix Systems Administrator Handbook which became a huge bestseller. She revised it in 1995 and then again in 2000. She also published the Linux Administration Handbook in 2002, and she revised it in 2006. In 2010, she authored the combined Unix and Linux System Administrations Handbook. These are all bestsellers and explain the basics of network topology and administration simply and without a lot of hype. Nemeth saw the need to simplify the arcane language of IT, a language that sometimes did more harm than good, in her opinion. So she wrote in very simple prose, easy to understand, that connected to students of computer science. In addition to teaching at several universities throughout her career, she spent eight years working in the cooperative at the Cooperative Association for Internet Data Analysis at the University of Uh, California in San Diego. Because of all of her books on being a system administrator, she she became known as the godmother of Unix administrators. She organized the Internet Engineering Curriculum Program, which was a repository of IT training tools for the academic world, and worked with Apple co-founder and Steve Wozniak to set up academic scholarships in the industry. Evie Namath retired from teaching and bought a sailboat in 2002, and she sailed the world. 
And I, I, I found her LinkedIn um, profile, and she said, no job, just sail in the Pacific on my boat, the Wonderland. That uh, LinkedIn profile has not been updated for quite some time. And you're going to find out why in just yeah. a second. Nemeth was a keen and experienced sailor who devoted much of her time to the water since her retirement. And she was well-respected in the cruising community. Nemeth was sailing off the western coast of New Zealand in a 21-foot, in a 21-meter vintage wooden schooner. I'm looking with, at a it's the, the Nina. With Nina? its owner. With its owner. Now, see, she had her own sailboat that she maintained, but she decided to uh, go on a long-distance sail in someone else's boat using equipment that she had not maintained, mm-hmm. and this turned out to be a huge mistake. That boat disappeared with Evie Nemeth and a, the family of four that she was wow. traveling with, and Evie was presumed to have died June or July 2013. Lost at sea. Yeah, the New Zealand authorities have formally called off the search for the cruiser. The boat was last heard on heard from on June 4th when Nemeth requested a meteorological information about rough weather that they were encountering. Mm-hmm. So I think she died doing what she loved because she ended up she retired in 2002 and she died in 2013. So she ended up sailing 11 years in retirement. So there you go, Evie Nemeth, a master teacher. But her sailing skills left a little bit to be desired. Yeah, sailing skills were a problem. And she's the godmother of Unix administrators. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday morning on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2, on the web at stratford.edu and federalnewsnetwork.com. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with 
Andrew Mitchell, the security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Jim Ross. Good morning and thank you for tuning in this Saturday morning to Tech Talk Radio. It is time for us to play the pop quiz. In Profiles in IT, we just finished talking about Evie Nemeth, a computer engineer who is known as the godmother of Unix administrators. She was also an avid sailor, and after her house burned down in 2013, she went on a sailing excursion off the coast of New Zealand. Today's question, how did that sailing trip end? First caller with the correct answer wins tickets for two for fine dining at any of the Stratford dining rooms in the Washington area. But you got to play to win. And to play, you've got to pick up the phone and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're waiting for the snow to melt in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. And of course, if none of those work, try the international line. 877-936-39333. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, standing by to take your calls. So, dial now. Let's yeah. talk about the app of the week, Be My Eyes. Now, Be My Eyes helps people who are blind or visually impaired see things with the help of sighted volunteers and the video cameras on their iPhone. Through a direct video link, the app gives blind people the opportunity to ask a sighted volunteer for help for, for tasks that require normal vision. Like somebody might say, is this a, a, a pink blouse or a blue blouse? And they can't tell. Or they might say, what is the expiration date on this milk? Is it, is it, is it expired or not? That might be two simple answers. So the person who is blind borrows the helper's eyes through his or her smartphone. The sighted helper is able to see and describe what the blind person is showing the sighted helper by filming it with his video camera on the smartphone. That way, by working together, they're able to solve the problem that the blind person is facing. Now, the Be My Eyes app is free, and it's available at the Google or the Apple App Store. The idea behind Be My Eyes originated from a Danish 50-year-old furniture craftsman, Hans Jorgen Weiberg. He started losing his vision when he was 25, and and he started calling up his friends and getting help. You know, he'd call up his friends, and, and, and he would use his phone and show them a picture, and he would get help. And, and gradually it became burdensome to always bother the same people. So we got the idea of uh, of developing this app. So we got a friend that helped them put it together. As of October 2018, Be My Eyes has 97,000 blind registrants. Now, this is the amazing thing. There are 1.6 million sighted volunteers who want to help. See, initially, he didn't think he could get people who would want to help. Huh. And it turned out that sighted volunteers love to do it because you, you, you just feel good when you help yeah, someone. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And you don't, you, it just, it's just sort of this idea you help someone else, you, you, you get a good feeling. Now, I registered for Have it. Have you? Yeah, it was really easy to register, and I'm waiting for my first phone call. They said it might take a couple of weeks to get your first phone call because they have so many volunteers. And, yeah. And, and the thing is, if you're busy when the call comes through, 
uh, they they send out the call like to to five or six volunteers at once. And the whoever first, picks it up, whoever first. picks it. So if, so if you can't get the call, it's okay. Somebody else will get it. Don't give apps access to your email, even to save a little bit of money. You know how you you like you go into something, they'll say, oh, use your Gmail account to create an account, or use your Facebook account, and people will do that because they they don't have to put in another password. They just mm-hmm. they, they just it just links to their Facebook account. Well, what you're doing when you when you just log in using a Gmail account or a Facebook account, you're actually giving them the password to that account so they have access to all your emails. They have access to all your Facebook. So you know what they do? They use that information to find out more stuff about you. So, okay. And then they sell it. And then they sell it. So I just, when I was trying to figure out what I did wrong with Periscope, Uh I used Twitter to sign in to Periscope. Yeah. Is that that what you're talking about? So Periscope now has your Twitter account password, and they they can then look at everything you're doing there. Lovely. So so I always, you have a choice of logging in with, like, Facebook or Gmail or just email. So I Mm -hmm. log in with my own email account. Uh, with an email, uh, you know, as user ID and email account as user ID, and then I create a new password just for that particular thing instead of cascading it. So, for instance, when Facebook, like, for instance, if those 29 million users who, who if, they, if, if, if they'd gone out to, like, 20 different sites and used Facebook to log in, then the people, when they hacked their Facebook account, could get into all the all other 20, sites. Oh, great. You see what I mean? Yes, so everything, I see what you everything mean. It's is a cas- domino effect. Everything is cascaded mm-hmm. together. So never, even if they, even if they say you'll save money if do it, just don't do it. Create a new user account in order to do it. It's just a little bit of good security advice. Now here's an application for facial recognition that is pretty interesting. Uh, women who are, have fertility problems frequently go to egg donors they'll, they'll go to they'll try to get egg donors there are, there are clinics that where you can actually people can donate their eggs i guess they get paid for that and then and then you can get a donated egg and 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 one of the problems you, you'd like to have if you're if you are using a donated egg for a baby you'd like the baby to sort of look like you right so so what they're doing now is they're using face recognition and they go through all and and many times the egg donor wants to be anonymous, so you you're, so you can't really look at who they are. So what they're doing, they're setting up uh, so they take a picture of all the donors and then they use face recognition to get the best matches they can. That's interesting. And then what they'll do is and then they will notify the clinic that has that particular donor and they'll say we would like this and they'll notify and so this 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 search is done so that the person is still anonymous. Yet, they look similar to the person who is going to have the that's baby. That's pretty cool. I think that's real, and you could do that. I think for for you know for men too. If you're if you go to a, if sperm donors, you could mm-hmm. probably do the same thing. It's that's actually that's a that's great a great app- idea. Really, that is. is really a good application. And then, but then you got to figure out, you know, like uh, I don't know if they screen these donors for diseases and and defects and that's, things. Well, that's I, well, they do all that anyway. They do all of that. all of that. They do anyway. So they'll and so they 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 screen them for you know college or they college educated all these other so mm-hmm. all these the parameters but but you, but the one parameter you like you'd like them to look similar to you exactly and so you've got all that other screening stuff that's done anyway and so when they search for someone that i guess they'll put in the criteria they want and they'll only look for faces that match who who also meet all their other criteria mm-hmm. here's the idea of the week hurricane damage assessment imagery online from october 11th to october 14th the national geodetic survey 
collected 9,500 aerial damage assessment images covering 4,100 square miles in the aftermath of of Hurricane Michael. Now, the imaging was collected in areas that were identified by NOAA in coordination with FEMA. The collected images were then available to be reviewed online. I mean, this is is the new thing. They were viewed online. So that meant that homeowners could go online. They could look at what happened to their house. They don't have to drive home. Mm -hmm. And so that was extremely – so I went to this imagery. Yeah, you can actually – and they've got before and after shots. It's crazy. It's it's um, devastating. Yeah. It's devastating, but this imagery online, and they were they were basically going, they were updating the images on a 12-hour cycle, and so they were going through, and people could go in there and check on the images, but the you know the uh, the um, the you know the, the devastation is just enormous when you look at these things. Now, what was interesting thing? Since the public could look at this, there was this one house that <clears throat> was heavily damaged, and the people and were people trapped in it. And they went out in their front yard and they put log they put logs and wood together and they spelled out help in the front yard, and then someone who was just looking at the imagery saw the help sign, they called up the rescue squad, and showed them where it was on the on the imagery, and the rescue squad went and rescued these folks and they they didn't know they were there and so. There was, a, there was a rescue that was facilitated with this uh, damage assessment imagery. So that's the idea of the week, and I think that's a great idea. Yeah, really. Now, the Pareto Principle in software design. Have you ever heard of the Pareto Principle? I have not, no, but I'm about to. You've heard of the 80-20 rule? No. You've never heard of the 80-20 no. rule? That's like um, 80% of your problems are caused by 20% of your friends. I'd never heard for instance, that. For instance, or <laughs> I mean, there, 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 there are a lot of like twenty, eighty percent of the effects come from twenty percent of the causes. That's this is this is like this is very common. And so, this, so like in software development, it turns out that you know your users tend to only use twenty percent of your features, and so eighty percent of your users are using twenty percent of your features. That's the Pareto design rule. Now this 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 name. This name was uh, was was created by Joseph Geron, and he suggested the principle. And he named that after an Italian economist, Vilfredo Pareto, <laughs> who showed that approximately eighty percent of the land in Italy was owned by twenty percent of the population. Interesting. So that was the Pareto rule. Or in software design, eighty percent of your users use twenty percent of your features. Or twenty percent of the code creates eighty percent of the errors. Okay, so that's and so this is so and so this, and this, so is, this interesting. is this is or for instance, if you if you had to use the 20, the Pareto rule for say cleaning the floor of say a large warehouse, it turns out that eighty percent of the traffic is going to use twenty percent of yes, the floor. Yes, agree. So if you clean only twenty percent of the floor, you. You've cleaned you've, about 100% of the... You've, 80% of your users are going to say, yeah, this really looks good. Mm-hmm. So, if you, if you, so, you, so the 80-20 rule can come in handy. It can. Now, that's also when you're doing software development, they've got the minimal viable product. This uses the Pareto principle in action. You build something that, will, that has 20% of the features that are used by 80% of the people, and you get a minimal viable product. And then once you get that minimal viable product launched... Then you simply watch what your users do, and you add features that they want. 
and you try not to create features that take 80% of the work but are only used by 20% of the people. That's it for this week. Tech Talk Radio returns next Saturday at 9 on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2 and 1039 FM HD2. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.